1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 17, says this. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in circumcision, in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. I'd like to open up this morning pointing out that nine times in this passage we find the word called or calling in one form or another. And as we think about that, I want to open up with a question. Um, Is there a calling to... A vocation. Does God call you to a vocation? Are you called to be a student? Are you called? Is, it a, is there a calling on your life? We use this term call from time to time. I'm called to do this. Does everyone have a calling? What are your thoughts? Yes. Every man has a calling. What's his calling? Oh, to be a man. Okay, so you have a. Uh, sorry? It varies. Every man is to work. All right. Do women have callings? Okay, we have we have half to answer. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So there is the call to salvation, which you know, First Corinthians speaks about a lot. If you go back to chapter one, uh, verse nine, I think it is. Let's see here, 1 Corinthians, wow, my pages, here we go. 1 verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we have this this, uh, calling to salvation. Down in verse 26 of chapter 1, it says, For consider your calling, brethren, not many, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those things which are strong. It seems like in verse 26, there is a calling out of your situation, whether you're the most educated or praised or wise or important people, quote-unquote, in the world. Um, Consider your calling... So what other callings do we have in the Bible? Yes? We're called to glorify God no matter what we do. That's right. But my question is, is there a calling? Like, uh, Joe, you, you work Disney? Yeah. Is that a calling? Are you called to work at Disney? 
You're questioning that right now. All right. Okay. Yes. To do his will. We're called to do his will. Right. And uh, 1 Peter 2, for to this you have been called, and there it's talking suffering and justice. So there's a calling even for believers to suffer unjustly. So when we think about a call to suffering, that's part of being a Christian as well. But I'm thinking more vocationally, and let me put it this way. How many seminarians do we have here? How many guys in seminary? Okay, good. So you guys can speak up here. Um, sometimes, if you've ever been to a seminary chapel, you'll have a speaker, and he begins talking, and he uses a tone of voice that sounds a little bit like he's speaking to Navy SEALs, and he says, you men have been called to the highest calling that there is on this earth. It's, it's, did I give the right tone? Is that... Have you heard that, guys? Have you heard people say that? So what do you think? Is, that, uh, is it true? Spencer, you, you're shaking your head no. I'm, I'm, I'm going with that. It's not always the five-talent thing. So uh, the talents that we've been given... Only, we, we don't, in the application process, there's not a question, how many talents do you have? <laughs> when we think about callings, uh, I, I think that sometimes we think about it the different way. When it comes to the seminary question, is there a highest calling? Well, I mean, in James 3, it says not many of you should be teachers. Why? Because there's a stricter judgment. So there's a there's a higher judgment for those. I don't know that that equates to a higher calling. First um, Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 talk about a high qualification that everyone is to aspire to, but elders must have those qualifications, otherwise they cannot serve. So there are high qualifications for the office of elder. Um, and Paul tells Titus he should appoint elders, um, which tells us that Titus was to appoint people who had a certain calling, I suppose. Ephesians 4, it says that God gave some as pastors and teachers, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And so we have this this actual God is giving to the church certain people for certain positions. So I think there would be this idea that there is a calling. Acts chapter 6, they separate some of the responsibilities in the church, like feeding widows, to other men who are qualified so that those who were leading the church could focus on two things. What were they? Prayer and the ministry of the word. And so there seems to be a certain focus for those who are in church leadership. Um, But I think that... Listen, I'm not here to say that somebody says you have the highest calling. If they have in mind that you have a stricter judgment, that you... I, th- I think this is what they're saying. I think this is what they're saying. I think they're saying that preaching the word and teaching the word is a huge responsibility. And because your life is focused around that and you have the opportunity to do that, you're involved in the highest calling more than other people. But what, what concerns me about saying you men have the highest calling is not that it 
highlights the responsibility that they are doing, but maybe it causes other people to think, well, that's not my calling, and so I don't have those responsibilities, and I'm kind of off the hook because we have these other people. And that's what I think this passage really helps us to understand. And I think that when we start thinking about more important, less important, we don't see that. We don't, even our Lord taught in Luke 9, 48, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me For He who is least among you all will be great. So I think when we're talking about importance, uh, I think we, we, we mustn't confuse a high calling with who is more important or who has a higher rank. But I think the question that this passage drives at for every one of us is where has God placed me? Where was I when he called me to salvation? And should I change that? When it comes to, and and, and this applies to social issues as well. There's a big movement in the church to change our society or social injustice. And is the church really for that? Is that our calling? And so when we, when we come to this, we find this section, 17 to 24, which we just read, in the midst of a passage that talks about singleness, celibacy, divorce, uh, remarriage. And in verse 25, it picks up again singleness again. And then we have this section in here about a calling. And it seems almost out of place. So how does this relate to our passage? Yes, in the back. Okay, so Galatians 5.13, you are called to freedom. What kind of calling is that? Is that a calling of salvation? Is that a call of liberty in salvation? Is that a calling for everyone? And it says, do not, go ahead and read it again nice and loud. Do not turn your uh, freedom into an opportunity for flesh. Right. So we do have a certain freedom in Christ. We're free from the power of sin. We're free from the penalty of sin. And one day we will be free from the presence of sin. Take a look back to verse 15 of our passage in 1 Corinthians 7. Remember, in verse 15, we're, t- we're looking at a situation where there were some um, people who maybe, evidently, because they wrote Paul about this in verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, uh, there were people who were having problems because they had come to faith in Christ while they were married to an unbeliever. They were an unbeliever, married to an unbeliever. They came to faith in Christ, but their spouse didn't. And evidently, someone was telling them, you should be divorced from that spouse. You should get out of that marriage because you have a pagan in your home and you have an idol worshiper in your home. It's going to affect your children. It's going to affect you know, uh, you, you know, the, the, your sanctification, and you want God's blessing on your home. And we went through that passage, and we saw that uh, the principle is laid down. If they abandon you, you are to let them go. But if they are willing to stay with you, you are not to divorce them. But if they do leave, it says back in verse um, uh, 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. But the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us 
to peace. So there we have this calling as well as believers of peace, to demonstrate peace in this world. In other words, don't chain yourself to someone and say, um, I'm going to force you to come to Christ. I'm your only hope. You must stay married to me. Um, don't take guns and go, sh- go, go, go surround people and say, you must convert to Christianity. We are called to peace where we're at. And as being called to peace, he comes in in our section, um, verse 16, for how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband? How do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? And what we see there is he's just basically saying, you know, you don't want to force them to be married to you, thinking that you're their only way of salvation. God may draw them to himself another way, but he doesn't have to depend on your marriage. If they're abandoning you, let them go. But when we have this idea of um, coming to faith and then serving Christ, we have in our passage really the idea that live out your calling. Live out your calling where you have been called. Life is ministry. And I think sometimes, uh, especially students, sometimes struggle with that idea. I'm training to do what the Lord has called me to do. When, in a sense, wherever you are at, it is ministry. There are people around you. As a student, you can walk into a classroom and you can say, well, I'll do ministry when I get out of here. Or you could say, who is hurting in this room? How can I minister to my fellow student? You can go to an office place and say, well, I do ministry at church because I signed a clipboard and it says I'm doing ministry from this time to this time. But there is an idea of informal ministry, which is, which is equally as important as formal ministry. And informal ministry is really caring for those around you and ministering to their needs so that when people hear about your church and see your life, they say, I can't believe how they genuinely love one another. This is a part of your calling. And so Paul has this section here, 17 through 24, where he's talking about serving people, serving uh, in the body of Christ. And we find really two examples that support God's plan for his people to serve him throughout society. Two examples for God's people when it comes to their calling or their service. And the first example is one of cultural identity. It's a cultural example, verses 17 through 20. Verse 17 says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner. Now, in the Roman Empire, Jews were looked down upon. They were seen as a, as a lesser race of people. There was great discrimination against Jews. They were seen as weak and unnecessary In fact, there was great pressure against Judaism that the four centuries before Christ, the Jewish historian Josephus recorded that there were some Jewish men who wanted to be accepted in Greek society, so they sought surgeries to make themselves appear to be uncircumcised when they bathed or when they exercised in Greek gymnasiums. Other Jews, like the Maccabees, revolted, but some tried to conform to society and make themselves look un-Jewish. The problem with that is that uh, if you became a Christian and you were a Jew, who would be the most receptive people to hear about the change? Who would you have the most opportunity to tell about your change? It would be your fellow Jews. But if you're doing everything you can to disassociate yourself 
with Jews, when you've been called to faith in Christ, then you've now isolated all those relationships you've had your entire life. In 1 Corinthians 7.18, it says, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called an uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. What matters is a changed heart that reflects itself in you wanting to follow Christ and people seeing that change. And whether that be physically trying to not identify with your culture. In the first century, there was a Roman encyclopedist named Celsus who wrote a detailed description of a surgical procedure for decircumcision. There's a lot of rabbinic um, literature that actually points to a procedure to become decircumcised. And that could be that that's what Paul's speaking to here, which was going on in, in the first century, and actually long before the first century. But there is also um, the idea here that no matter what culture you're in, trying to not identify yourself with that culture is, is, is not what God wants for you. Now, obviously, if the culture that you live in is an immoral culture, then you should get out of it. You, you don't say, well, I want to stay a part of the drug culture because those are my people and I was saved in that culture and the Bible says I should stay a part of my culture. We're not advocating for Christian prostitution either. If you're in an immoral culture, you need to escape from sin because sin is not something that we're to be associated with. But I think sometimes we have this idea, and, and I think the Jews did, uh, some of them were thinking that, um, and even in Corinth, Corinth, a very Greek city, um, hey, I, I want to be accepted, you know, I want to you know, get away from all of my Jewish identity. And Paul's saying, don't do that. That culture is very valuable. Well, we see this all over today. We see, uh, you know, in Africa, we see Africa is becoming more and more Western. Many countries uh, are, 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 Mark, you know, China, are you seeing culture shifts among young people? People becoming less and less Chinese, trying to look more and more Western. The, the point is that in the church, that's not our goal. That's not our focus. Our focus is not getting rid of a culture, which is neither here nor there. Our focus is on glorifying Christ where he has us. So we look at that idea of obedience, but each man must remain in the condition, verse 20. And this is, this is a fascinating verse to me because as I'm going through this passage, I'm looking at these nine. So first of all, when you look at this passage and you start to write it out and you're looking at it, you're saying calling, 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 calling. And then, I, you know, the grammar geek inside you says, well, are these verbs? Are they, you know, and they are, you know, and most of them are, are aorist tense or, you know, um, perfect tense. But you come to this one in verse 20 and it's there twice, once as a noun and once as a verb. And you think, that's interesting, right? That's the first thought that comes to your mind. Why is it like that? Each one must remain in that calling in which he was called. And this is one place in Scripture where the word calling, which is translated as condition, 
And I think the idea here is the circumstances or even the situation that you found yourself. But it's the word for call. You're to remain in the calling in which you were called. So does everybody have a calling? I believe it's fair to use that word because the Bible uses that word. Most often when the Bible uses the word called, it's talking about called to salvation, a call to salvation in the New Testament. But when we think about this idea, um, he says each man, verse 20, must remain in that condition in which he was called. And that brings us to the second example relating to serving God where you are. And that example is a social identity, not only an identity of one that has to do with culture, but one with social. Verse 21, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is a slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition. Here it's implied in verse 24. So the second example that we find here Verses 21 through 24, social identity. He uses an illustration who's come to faith in Christ while he's a slave. Now, why doesn't, why doesn't Paul speak out against slavery? Is slavery wrong? Is slavery, slavery wicked? Is slavery... Wait a minute, first of all, does anybody here own any slaves? Okay, so we live in, we live in an era where nobody here, at least, owns slaves, Slavery is still an issue, though, today around the world. There is a slave market. There's a, there's a slave trade. There's human trafficking, right? And we're all against that, right? Is slavery inherently evil? Is slavery wicked? And if it is, why doesn't Paul speak out against slavery here? This is the point where you can, you can agree or disagree because it was so prevalent? So, but now, if it's prevalent, does that mean we shouldn't speak out against it? I mean, in our day, for example, the idea of six little day creation is not very prevalent. Even in Christian universities, many of them are taking a longer earth viewpoint. We believe that's what the Bible teaches, but should we just say, well, it's not very prevalent, we shouldn't speak out against it? Okay, I think what you're saying is that, is that because it was so widespread, we look back on it uh, through history, more critical than they were. Do you think that maybe they didn't realize it was a problem? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, um, I'm going to try and, and that's, that's good. I, I, I think that's a good argument. Uh, I think it's a good perspective. Um, I think what you're saying is that we look back on slavery, seeing the evils of it. They were in the midst of it. We're judging them through our lenses. And so therefore, we can't blame them for not seeing what we don't see. I happen to think that I'm hoping that 100 or 200 years from now, people will look back at the church and they'll say, 
Why didn't the church do more to stop abortion? It's murder. But many of people who are Christians never spoke out against it. They just kind of tolerated it. Um, you could say the same thing about government overreach. Why don't more Christians speak out against government overreaches? They, we don't see it. It's like the frog in the kettle. Um, and and uh, I think that's true with certain things. Um, but I would say I don't believe that slavery is inherently evil. It cannot be because I am a slave of Christ and because God calls me to be his slave. And therefore, slavery as an institution is not evil. I willingly lay down my life and want to be his slave. There is no other greater master. I was born as a slave. I was a slave to sin. And yet, God called me out of that, and I am his slave. However, having said that, the abuse in slavery is always wicked and is always evil. And, uh, and so we should always condemn abuse in slavery, the abuse of people. Um, but in biblical times, in the first century, you could acquire a slave a number of different ways. You, you could be a prisoner of war. You could purchase a slave. You could receive one as a gift. You could accept one as a debt that was owed to you. Some slaves were born into slavery, but, and they, they were also, so there were children of slaves who became slaves. Some slaves were former thieves who were given the option of paying back their debt by becoming a slave somewhere. Finally, some slaves volunteered to be slaves because they desired to work for a certain master, and their life as a slave would have been better than the life of a peasant. But just like you could become a slave in a number of ways, you could also gain your freedom in a number of ways. According to Exodus 21, Hebrew slaves were all to be released after no more than six years of service. Leviticus 25 teaches us about the principle of the kinsman redeemer, whereby if you're sold into slavery because of a debt, a relative of yours has the right to buy your freedom for you. Slaves could be granted their freedom at any time by their masters, and they might have an arrangement whereby they served for a certain number of years and then would regain their own freedom. So there were a number of ways to get out of it, but slavery was something that was quite common, which doesn't mean it's necessarily good or evil. Um, and I think that a- another thing that we need to keep in mind here is that, and this is where we get to your calling, because God has you, whether that's Uh, working for a company or being a homemaker, um, the neighborhood you live in, um, you're a student, whatever it is, he has you in a place, and if he calls you and you you have repented of your sins and trusted in him as your Lord and master and you're now a slave for Christ, then that calling involves suffering and injustice because the world will hate you. That calling involves bringing peace to the world, being people of peace, a calling of peace. That means using your words and your actions to demonstrate the change in your life and to care for other people and to reach out to other people and to speak truth about Christ. This is part of our calling. And the change that takes place in the heart of somebody who's been transformed, who realizes I deserve death, is so much greater that no circumstance that you're in, whether that's a country that's being oppressed, whether that's a, um, a, a job that's not fun, 
uh, that's, uh, that's a burden on you, um, whether that's being, uh, even being a slave, our goal is not to change society by uprising against it. And that's why it's a dangerous thing when the church says, well, we need to fight out against social injustice. We do need to speak out against injustice, but if that becomes the focus of the church rather than on Christ and really justice, because we, if you want to speak about injustice, I don't deserve to be saved. And, and so we have such a greater message and a greater calling than to change the earth's social structures. And so the Bible doesn't need to speak out against slavery because it speaks out against injustice. And the best way to change society is to have transformed lives in society whereby people look at it and say, what is going on with that person? How can I, how can I actually... Uh, it, 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 How can they have such a good attitude when they're being treated so poorly and I'm the one treating them poorly and they look upon me with love and compassion as though I'm the one who is suffering? What do they have that I don't have? That is the way of the cross. This is part of your calling. This is confirmed in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, it says, um, I referred to it earlier. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse... Let's just, let's just start with um, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called to this purpose. What purpose? Suffering unjustly. The way of the cross is to follow Christ's example, as it talks in the rest of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Christ's example is one who, when reviled, did not revile in return. When threatened, did not threaten in return. There's this idea that God has called you in a place, and you are going to be ridiculed and suffer, and it's going to be difficult, it's not going to be easy, but you shouldn't try to get out of it just because it might be easier or because you think that you're going to be in a higher level of spirituality. He called you there to be obedient to him with a transformed heart so that those around you could see the work that he's done. This is part of your calling. Does that mean if he calls you as a 12-year-old boy that you need to ride a bicycle the rest of your life? That you can never be married because you were single when you were called? No. It makes it clear in our passage that if you have an opportunity and it seems like you can get out of it, you can get out of it. It says here, um, verse 21, if you were, but if you were able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called on the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. So do you see what he's getting at here when he talks about this idea in the context of marriage? Because there were marriage, there were people in marriages where they felt trapped. And he says, remain where you're at. If you're married to someone and they're an unbeliever and they're willing to live with you, it may be miserable. But this is part of your calling. We're not here to say, and of course they had this, there was some teaching that 
you know, that somehow celibacy was more spiritual, that everybody should be celibate. And he speaks out against that, that that's not right, that there are some people who have that calling. And as Luther said, for every person who has the gift of singleness, there's 100,000 others who don't, right? Which I don't know where he gets that from, but I like the idea that he's, he's saying that, you know, this is, this is probably not a very common thing. That's an observation from the 1500s. I think it's true today. So we have this call. But I want, I want, I want to try and um, uh, make sure that you're not thinking about this call as a robot. You know, that you're speaking only in theological terms. Uh, there's a story about George Whitfield who knew a woman named Elizabeth Delamotte. George Whitfield was a famous evangelist, great theologian, really had, you know, great theology, believed in the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. Um, and he wanted to marry Miss Elizabeth Delamotte, so he wrote her a proposal. He would have texted it today if, if texting was a thing then, but he wrote this in a letter. We have the letter. It's fascinating. You can look it up and read the whole thing, but I'll give you some highlights. Here it is. Quote, Miss Elizabeth Delamotte, I have great reason to believe that is the divine will that I should alter my condition. What a, what a way with words, isn't it? Just <laughs> overwhelming her. That I should alter my condition and have um, often thought that you were the person appointed for me. I could go on, but I like the way he signs it. Your affectionate brother comma, friend, use the friend word, comma, and servant of Christ, George Whitfield. She turned him down. <laughs> Go figure. Take note. So this is not just a, just a um, you know, you can have your theology right, but it doesn't mean that you should live in a world so wooden and so... Just, um, you know, just so focused. Yes, we're to glorify Christ, but you can tell her you love her, right? And so she later married him. It later worked out for him. So, but uh, he got the message. It's a good story, Whitfield. What we're seeing here is that Paul reminds his readers that They have been redeemed at a price, verse 23. I think this is beautiful because we have this picture of a kinsman redeemer, of somebody who saw us in slavery and yet paid the price to bring us out. Um, Verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition, which is implied, in which he was called. So the implication is, Where was your calling? Where were you when God called you to salvation? And if you have an opportunity to get out of that, it's permissible. Earlier he says he wishes that all were single as he was, but if you want to get married, get married. So he's not not prohibiting marriage. He's not saying you have to stay. Uh, But the principle is remain as you are. Remain where God has put you until it's clear that there is... Um, uh, a reason for you to go out. And 
I think of the numerous times um, for eight years I was pastoring in South Africa. South Africa is a country where economically things have gone down, crime has gone up, it's become a more and more difficult place for people to live, and there have been a lot of people who want to get out of the country. And so it's different than Malawi. Malawi is a very poor country. Sort of the young people in Malawi have a dream. Their dream is to leave, to go get education and some money, and then come back to Malawi and flourish and help the country. That's the, the big dream in Malawi. In South Africa, the big dream among many young people is to get out of the country and never return. And so you see that kind of hopelessness. And I would have probably, on average, 30% of our church would leave. So every year we'd have people leaving our church, and we would commission them out. We would say, hey, God's you know, uh, obviously got a plan for you out there, and, and God bless you, and, and we're, you know, we saw it as something that, that God was doing. But every family that came to me and said, should I leave? I would talk to them about this principle. And then I would say, are you leaving because you're discontent here? Because discontentment is a heart issue that the Word of God deals with. And discontentment is something that you, can, um, that you should deal with biblically before you leave. Discontentment is not a reason to leave. But rather, there should be something that you're going to. And uh, I think that applies in many different areas. Culturally, I think it socially, um, sociologically, I, I think that when it comes to our cultural identity and our social identity, we should not try to be changing that. I'll close in prayer in just a few minutes, but we have some extra time. We've got about seven minutes. Um, any questions? Any questions about what we've talked about? Yes. Would you say that when Scripture talks about slavery in a broader context, would that um, most appropriately be interpreted toward our boss or a person in China? So the question is, uh, when Scripture talks about slavery, should we apply that to our own employment? It depends who your boss is, I suppose. No, um, <laughs> uh, you work for the Master's University, right? Um, I think that Paul often used the most extreme work situation to bring a point across, because if, you're in le- if, if that applies to people who are in that extreme, then yeah, there is an application for people who are in a less extreme situation. And so I think there are certainly this principle. By the way, this principle, three times in our passage, same principle repeated. Verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24. Remain, remain, verse 20. In verse 17, as the Lord has assigned to each one. Interesting word there, your assignment. Yes, question, Pete. Uh, culturally, uh, was slavery back in this time similar or different? Yeah. So the question is, 17th century colonial slavery, was, uh, was it different than biblical slavery? Yes, it was. And I tried to communicate that, and thank you for asking that. So there were people who volunteered to be slaves in the first century. There were good slave owners. Not everybody was a good slave owner, but the institution itself uh, was an institution that worked. I think in Rome at one period, there were 40% of the population were slaves. So it was not an uncommon thing, and it was something that could, you could be a doctor and be a slave. You could be a teacher and be a slave. So there were, there were people who were happy, relatively happy, being slaves, just like people can be happy in their work today. So I, I think that that's different. When we think about 17th century where people are abducted from their 
home and placed in a ship and taken and beaten. And that, that's the abuse of slavery called historical appropriateness. It's a rule of interpretation. You don't read back into something from the first century through the lens of something from the 17th century. And so we don't see the word slave and immediately say, ah, slavery. And, and we think the abolition of slavery in the 1700s was great and was good. Um, but uh, it, it was a lot of transformed lives. It took a long time to help get the world to change that. Um, but I don't think that's the goal of, of our... We're concerned more about the freedom from sin than we are seeing society free people from abuse, though we're concerned about abuse. Did I answer your question, Pete? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so the question is, is motherhood the highest calling for women, uh, or how does this relate to our conversation from the beginning? I would turn you to Titus chapter 2. Sometimes people say, well, women shouldn't teach. Actually, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches women are commanded to teach. In Titus 2, it says um, that um, verse 3 Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor slave to much wine, teaching what is good. Verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So women were to teach. Older women are to teach younger women. And so we have, uh, because sometimes people say, well, some women are such gifted teachers. How could God not have called them to teach? I believe he does call them to teach, to teach other women. Um, And it has, there's there's nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. God didn't look at men and women and say, "Um, well, men are better than women, so that's why, you know, I want them men to be the leaders. God called men to be leaders because men were created first, it says in Timothy. They were created first. It was the creation order. Men happened to come on the scene first. You are going to be the one I'm going to hold accountable for what happens in your family. That's what God did to men by putting them as the head of the home, Ephesians chapter 5. But Titus 2, we have this interesting verse where it says they should be keepers of the home, um, which I believe their first priority should be at home. And so you have some women who can you know, go work at the, their kid's school as a, as a substitute teacher or, you know, a teacher's aide or something like that, and then, and then come home, and they're still up early, and they're, 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 their kids are still being shepherded by them. The first priority is still at home, and some women can't, and that's okay. I'm, I'm not saying that there's not a place for women to do anything outside of the home. The Proverbs 31 woman was a very industrious woman, but your first priority needs to be at home, and that is a high calling. And if you've ever been to a country where children raise children and you see the results of that, um, which we're seeing in our country as well, uh, you'll understand that people are neglecting their calling. All right, those are great questions. If you have more, you can come up afterwards. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word. We do thank you for the fact that you have called anyone. We're humbled by that. 
that we can hear the fact that your word teaches that we're sinners, that we deserve to die, and the wages of sin is death, and we understand that because we're sinners, we deserve to be separated from you for all eternity. And yet, by grace, you sent your son, who never sinned, who never deserved to die, and yet he was crucified on the cross as a substitute, as a satisfaction against your wrath, as someone who would be a substitute for me. And for those who would repent and follow him as Lord. And I pray that those who are still enslaved to sin would see that their master is evil and wicked and that they would turn to the perfect holy master. And they would repent of their sin and abandon their sin and turn and follow you and that you would change their hearts. And I pray that they would see that this calling is something which is to be a light throughout this world and that you have called all of us, not just pastors, to be those who demonstrate your word, but all of us should be sharing your word both verbally and in our actions. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.